The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Man, with an introduction like that, Randy, even I'm excited to hear about what I have to say. Wow. I never knew I was all that stuff. Well, is everybody awake? I know why they had me speak right after lunch when everybody's nodding off. I'm the sort of loud, brash, token, annoying American that had the, what is it that, uh, was it the late, tragic Robin Williams who once humorously said Canada's the great quiet loft above the loud party? Sometimes I have to get away from the loud party and come to the quiet loft, and I'm glad to, I'm glad to be here. I feel very privileged to be uh, identified with these guys down here and some of you out there, the uh, Ezra Institute. In fact, I was thinking, I'm not sure if there are any Christian ministries, educational foundations more programmatically aligned with CCL, which is the organization I lead than the Ezra Institute. In fact, Dr. Boot was uh, in California two weeks ago speaking at uh, our uh, symposium in the San Francisco area, and it was great for him to be there, and he was just as outstanding there as he was this morning. You may want to turn that down because I can get really loud. Is that okay? Even in Canada, am I allowed to be a little loud sometimes? <laughs> Let me know if I'm getting too loud, Now, tone down like the Canadians and be real nice and polite. But... Um, so um, today's theme is uh, some of you may want to take outlines pretty easy to take outlines when I'm speaking I'll say first, second, third, the next point and so on Uh, today's theme is uh, social justice but I'd like to uh, step back and speak more broadly and sweepingly about the historical and cultural conditions that permitted social justice to emerge in the first place Uh, I'm devoting my life to a CCL, to a new iteration of Christian culture and I've spent a lot of time investigating the development and the demise of Christian culture and world history, particularly, of course, in the West. What we nowadays term social justice, has been articulated so well this morning, is a large and poisonous fruit of the demise of Christian culture. And we won't understand why social justice emerged until we understand why Christian culture evaporated. I'm not offering today any genealogy of either Christian culture or social justice, but I do want to follow a sort of historical arc. That arc spans the creation of the universe right down to our present day. And all within two hours. Isn't it amazing? Um, In this first talk, I'll address the roots and reign of Christian culture. By that I mean I'll discuss its origin as well as its prominence in our society, Western society. In the second talk, I'll deal with its ruin and restoration, how we lost Christian culture and what we can do to recover it. And along the way, I'll show how Christian culture relates to social justice. What should be our starting point when considering Christian culture? The answer is actually pretty simple. It's um, right here in the beginning, creation. A Constantine and the gradually Christianized Roman Empire come to mind, right, when we think about the origins 
of Christian culture, and to an extent, rightly so. But the real roots of Christian culture, like the roots of everything else God is doing in the world, are found in creation. Now, we as evangelicals are known as redemption people. We love the cross. We relish the resurrection. That's just as it should be. But all too often, we have a reputation of downplaying or even circumventing creation. As Gordon Spikeman once said, we're too quick to get to the cross. Now, that charge has a ring of of sacrilege to it, but actually, it's, it's quite true. If we don't properly account for creation, we can't properly account for the cross. The cross and creation stand in a continuum in God's plan for humanity. And if we downplay creation, we'll soon miss the full reality of the cross. Just now I'd like to touch on just several truths briefly about creation that are particularly pertinent to the rise of Christian culture. First, why did God create? Well, of course, for his own glory, like everything else, but we're wanting perhaps a more specific answer than that. The Bible doesn't give us one explicitly, but it does give us an implicit answer. Jesus, in the great prayer to his Father, recorded in John 17, requests that his disciples will know the communion that he and the Father know and knew from eternity. We read in Genesis that God came down to commune with Adam and Eve in the cool or the wind or the spirit of the day. Man was made in the first place for communion with God. We might say that the Blessed Trinity almost said to one another, we can almost hear them saying as we read between the lines in the word, the ecstasy of our communion with one another, very God of very God, is so great that we need to share it. Let us make creatures in our own image so they can share with us this glorious communion. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Man, therefore, isn't simply created for society. He was created within the context of an already flourishing divine society. Man was created to share in the Trinitarian communion of God Almighty, as a creature, of course, but nonetheless in that communion. Man, therefore, is an inherently communal being. It's not good for man to be alone in terms of his horizontal relation. That's why God created the woman But it's also not good for man to be alone in his vertical relation. Both man and woman were created for communion with the triune God. By implication, Christian culture, a godly culture, is rooted in the Trinity. Listen carefully to this. Christian culture is a creaturely extension of Trinitarian culture. Second. At the conclusion of each creation day, God declared, as recorded in Genesis 1, that his work was, audience response, his work was good. At the conclusion of the sixth day, he pronounced everything that he made, and it was very good. Creation is inherently good. Now, what does this truth have to do with Christian culture? Simply this, the created universe is not man's problem. Creation is not a drag on man. It's not something that man needs to overcome. Now, likely the earliest heresy in the Christian church was Gnosticism. 
This heresy included the popular idea that the material universe, including man's body, is a prison, and that salvation is the escape. Materiality is evil, or at least undesirable. Now, in its most crass form, some people believe that the God of the material world is evil, and the God of the spiritual, defined as non-material, world is good. Salvation, then, is salvation from creation. The fall is redefined as the fall from spirit into matter. Now, listen well. Newsflash. That's heresy. You can write that down. That is heresy. In philosophical terms, it understands the fall as metaphysical, not ethical. In other words, it sees the source of the great problems of the world in the corporeality of creation and not in the heart of man. Now, that's certainly a convenient argument, isn't it? The Bible teaches there's nothing inherently wrong about creation, but there's plenty wrong with the heart of man. God did curse creation for man's sake, but creation itself is not inherently sinful. It bears the marks of sin's pollution, but creation is not the problem. Now, how is this truth important for Christian culture? Simply this. If creation didn't cause the fall, getting rid of creation won't get rid of the effects of the fall. Moreover, since God's work in Jesus Christ on the cross is designed to redeem everything presently under the domain of sin. Did you get that? And since this includes creation, creation should be redeemed, and that is a part of the gospel. This means that all the elements of culture, including money and food and technology and education and the arts and politics, all presently burdened under the weight of sin, are designed and destined to be redeemed. Salvation isn't liberation from creation, it's liberation from sin. Third, although man was created for communion with the triune God, man was created to live obediently within the rest of God's creation. In fact, man's primary earthly calling is to exercise dominion or stewardship over God's non-human creation, all of it. Now, this commission is often called the cultural mandate. Interestingly, God decided not to directly oversee and steward this entire creation. Have you thought about that? He gave that responsibility to man. In other words, man is God's deputy in the world. Now, up until now, I've been using the term culture as though its meaning is uh, self-evident. But I'd like to define it a little more specifically. Indeed, before we address Christian culture, we need to understand what culture is, right? Culture, strictly defined, denotes those products of human interactivity with nature that reflect the self-conscious goal of human benefit. Education, science, entertainment, technology, architecture, the arts. Even such simple human products as meals, toys, personal grooming products, and we could go on and on. The category of culture introduces a sharp divide from nature or creation. We know that God created nature. It is his handiwork. God does not create culture, not directly, anyway. 
Creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make, John Frame says, and he's right. Culture is quite different from creation. Its distinctive trait is the human use of that creation for man's benefit. Culture is what we get when man intentionally employs creation for beneficial purposes. A tomato is not an aspect of culture, but pizza is. Oxygen is not an example of culture, an oxygen mask is. The historic King David is not defined as culture. But Michelangelo's famous sculpture, King David, is culture. Creation plus man's beneficial interaction with it equals culture. Now, as we walk in this world, we constantly encounter, and almost always simultaneously, both nature and culture. We confront pecan trees and cumulus clouds and the Rocky Mountains and dense fog and fox terriers and corn stalks and in Canada, frigid winters and most significant of all, other human beings created in God's image. Now, amid this nature, we experience and create culture, culture. Uh, Superhighways and smartphones and dog training schools and political elections and pecan pie and Michelangelo's David and jackhammers and shotguns and hearing aids and, and, and on down the line. Man acts on God's creation and produces culture. God's design is that godly people produce culture. But because of sin, sinful people now produce culture. Unbelievers in the post-fall world fulfill the cultural mandate no less than we believers do. This, in fact, constitutes the great conflict in our world. Two kinds of people with two very different spiritual natures and fundamentally conflicting convictions, both, both shaping the world, intentionally or not. Each of us, believer and unbeliever, approaches cultural tasks, education and politics and science and the arts and music and technology, movie making and all other cultural activity in two distinctively different ways. The issue can't be reduced to how Christians think and act versus how non-Christians think and act. Why? Well, because many Christians don't think and act like Christians. Have you noticed that? And to be honest, many non-Christians sometimes think and act like Christians. The actual issue is this. What does culture look like when both Christians and non-Christians are true to their basic spiritual condition? I'd like to suggest that in recent years, non-Christians have become more consistent with their basic spiritual condition than Christians have with theirs. It's not just that there are more unbelievers in the States and in Canada. There are more unbelievers who are self-consciously thinking and acting like unbelievers. And when they self-consciously think and act like unbelievers, and when there are a lot of them, they tend to create a non-Christian or even anti-Christian culture. Properly fulfilled, the cultural mandate means that Christians self-consciously create a culture in harmony with God's revealed will in his word. When enough Christians do this in a society, they create a Christian culture. 
I love what Henry Meter says about culture. He says it's the execution of this divinely imposed mandate. In his cultural task, man is to take the raw materials of this universe, nature as I said, and subdue them, make them serve his purpose, and bring them to nobler and higher levels, thus bringing out the possibilities which are hidden in nature. When thus developed, man is to lay his entire cultural product, the whole of creation, at the feet of him who is king of man and of nature, in whose image man and all things are created. Isn't that beautiful? There can be no Christian culture without the successful execution of the cultural mandate. Christian culture doesn't happen all by itself. Now, next point. We have an example, or at least a paradigm for Christian culture, in the Old Testament. Now, I refer, of course, to ancient uh, Israel. The Jews, of course, were God's uniquely chosen people in a way that no nation or culture subsequently ever could be. Look, if Joe can have his tea on a movie, can I have water during a talk? Is that okay? Man. I think I'm going to call that the thirsty video. That's what we can call it. No nation or culture, not Canada, not the United States, could be God's people in the way that Israel was. But it was a godly culture. We might even say, in a sense, a Christian culture in the broadest sense, since it anticipated the Messiah. And it was called to live according to God's revelation. And it did have, to some degree at least, the cultural mandate fulfilled within its borders. Two truths are especially germane to Christian culture as we consider ancient Israel. Number one, God gave a written propositional law by which to govern his people and his world. Now this isn't a pleasant thought to many moderns. We live in a time of antinomianism. What does that mean, antinomianism? Lawlessness. Not just in society, but also in the church. Whenever many evangelicals hear the term law, they immediately think of something harsh and something very oppressive. They think of law-keeping as trying to win God's favor or eternal life by by being virtuous. To be sure, people can pervert the law into these uses. But this is not how the law was intended to be used. No one who reads David's exaltation in Psalm 119 would ever say, would ever say if you've read Psalm 119, that the actual revelatory law, the law here, is burdensome and oppressive. Yes, Pharisees can turn the law into an oppressive burden by ripping it away from God's gracious purposes in his son, Jesus Christ. But this is a perversion of the law. God's law is his gracious provision for holiness. And not simply holiness in our individual and private life, but holiness in society also. Now, it's just here that we can detect a valuable truth about the idea of social justice, which is our main theme today. This propositional law, and Joe already made this point, is God's standard of justice, which is essentially a synonym for righteousness. According to 1 John 3, 4, sin is a violation of God's law. Therefore, to act justly is to act in the right, to treat other people rightly and not wrongly. These categories of rightness and wrongness, of justice versus injustice, imply a standard. That is precisely what God's written law is intended to be, a standard of justice. 
It's not simply a just standard of vertical righteousness. That is how we're to live in relation to God. But also his standard for horizontal righteousness. How we're to live among our fellow human beings and in all of God's creation. God's standard of justice is not subjective and arbitrary. It's revealed in his word. Now this fact leads to a second truth. God's law is wide-ranging. It's designed, as I said, for our horizontal relationships with one another and not simply our individual relationship with God. Now, today, many Christians seem to treat the faith as a, I love this expression from Stephen Perks, as a private devotional hobby. They see the Bible as the textbook for enjoying that hobby. If so, think about it, God sure wasted a lot of ink. The fact is, the Bible is about a great deal more than our vertical relationship with him, vital though that is. It's also designed to govern political arrangements, read it, and food consumption and economic transactions and judicial courts and art creation and athletic contests and clothing choices. So I never read that in the Bible. Well, if you would read the Bible, you would find that it's in there. You can find God's law governing all of these areas in the Bible. I'm not suggesting that every Old Testament law is applicable today. The laws designed to separate the Jews from the Gentiles have obviously been set aside. And, of course, the laws of the uh, the sacrificial system have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews is quite clear about that. I am arguing, however, that it is foolhardy to suggest that God's universal standard of behavior what we might want to call his propositional moral law, is to be limited to pious, private matters. That idea is obviously a fallacy. In addition, God's moral law is designed for all people and not only for God's people. This is an important point. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that in the Old Testament, God's moral law binds Gentiles and not only Jews. He warns Israel that it was precisely for the Gentiles' violation of his moral law that he expelled the pagans from Canaan. Think about that point. God inspired the Jewish prophets to indict the pagan Gentiles for their depravity right alongside the Jews. And if you don't believe that, read Isaiah 14 through 24. It's amazing. You want to see this litany in Isaiah. Start there and just read. Wow. Talking to the Jews. And then he says the same things to these other surrounding nations. Truly remarkable. Consequently, God hasn't only given man a cultural mandate, he's also given man propositional revelation by which to fulfill that mandate. Christian culture is not a book with blank pages that we're invited to transcribe. Rather, it's more like an extensive outline of God's standards within which we are to act both obediently and creatively for his glory. So, when most people think about Christian culture, however, they have in mind the Roman Emperor Constantine, right? You know the basic story, many of you do, and the night before a battle against Maxentius, Constantine had a dream that he should paint the sign of the cross on the armor and on the helmets of his badly outnumbered army, and they won a smashing victory the next day. And Constantine adopted Christianity as a result, both for himself and for the Roman Empire. In February of 313, he issued the Edict of Milan. 
This legislation reversed the worst persecution under the reign of Diocletian that the church had ever experienced. Both many Christians and their critics seem not to understand that Constantine didn't forcibly establish Christianity. The Edict of Milan restored the positions and the money and the land to the Christians that had been expropriated by earlier emperors. This edict legislated religious toleration. The Edict of Milan gave religious freedom to everybody, including pagans, not just Christians. Might not have known that, right? Listening to secularists talk about Constantine. Constantine was possibly a political tyrant, but he didn't employ Christianity as a tool of this tyranny. Christian culture began not as a result of political imposition, but as a result of religious liberty. What a thought! Christian culture, as we move down afterwards, subsequently, gradually developed both in the East, in Byzantium, and in the West, Rome, as a result of religious liberty. Uh, Christians had already developed a nearly parallel society and uh, culture. When, therefore, they were granted religious liberty, they weren't at a loss about what to do. Let me put this another way. Christian culture began in Christian families and churches, and during Constantine's reign and afterwards, they expanded that culture to a wider society. They already had a Christian culture in miniature. In the East, this Christian culture lasted a thousand years. Wow. Wow until the Islamic sack of Constantinople in 1453. In the West, it lasted until the European Enlightenment, the 18th century. Christian culture was so influential that you simply cannot understand Western culture, or for that matter, Near Eastern culture, including Russia, without understanding something about Christian culture. The uh, topic of medieval Christian culture is just Massive, but I want to make two observations particularly applicable to us today. First, Western Christendom broke with the pagan practice of the monopolistic political community. There was nothing like separation of church and state in, state in the ancient pagan world. All of the ancient empires from Egypt to Rome saw the state as encompassing all of life. Now, what Christian culture did was to insert another and a competitive authority into that mix. That authority was the church and, as a result, the Christian family. In fact, as time went on, the state often grew gradually weaker while the church of Rome grew stronger. The church was an international community united under the papacy. But oftentimes the various states, particularly in Europe, were small and weak and remote and isolated. The church had much more power than the state usually did. Boy, that's a reversal, isn't it? Now, of course, there were big conflicts between medieval kings and the papacy. These conflicts are well known. But these conflicts tended to preserve freedom. They started to foster what we nowadays call civil society. By that I mean voluntary private institutions and associations inserted between the individual and the state that compete with the state for our allegiance, like the family, the church, clubs, business associations. 
Civil society makes sure the state doesn't have a monopoly on citizens' loyalty. The origins of civil society are in medieval Christian culture. Christian culture always and everywhere breaks a political monopoly. And that's why statists hate it. That's why they hate it. It doesn't, of course, Christian culture advocate uh, anarchism. Christian culture does require the state. But it does not allow the state to encompass all of life. This medieval practice of civil society instituted, therefore, a legitimate separation of church and state. Now, perhaps this sounds counterintuitive since we often hear that the fatal flaw of medieval Christendom was the union of church and state. But this objection has got it all wrong. That's false. Now, this fallacious assumption, objection, leads to the next important and the second truth. Christian culture supported a separation of church and state, but not a separation of the state from God. These two are very different. It's true that at times the church attempted to commandeer the state, as did Charlemagne starting on Christmas Day in 800. But in the medieval world, the conflict between the claims of the state and the church were almost perpetual. It was, in fact, this church-state conflict that destroyed the religious monopoly of ancient paganism. Now, today, critics of Christian culture are scandalized by the idea of a return to Christian culture because they claim that it will reunite church and state. They don't understand that you can have a Christian state without the political dominance of the church. Everybody awake? Still following me? The real issue is not a separation of church and state, which Christian culture supports, but a separation of the state from God, which Christian culture does not support. That is the real issue. All of life was designed to pay tribute to Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. This, this, not separation of church and state, is the truly unifying feature of Christian culture. Now, the secular critics claiming that we who espouse Christian culture are trying to unify church and state, who say we're doing that, are wrong, and sometimes intentionally wrong. The smart ones, I mean, and there are a few smart ones. They know that we don't support Roman Catholics or Lutherans or Calvinists or Anglicans or Baptists or Pentecostals capturing and controlling the apparatus of the state. They know we're not trying to do that. That's not the issue, and that's never been the issue. But they do fear, and what they correctly fear is that Christian culture would mean that God's truth would permeate every aspect of life, including the state. In other words, life would no longer be secular. That is what they fear. Now, you might also have inferred another reason that secularists deplore Christian culture. Most secularists are also statists. They believe that the state should engulf and monopolize all of life, just as the ancient pagan empires did. The state is their substitute for God. Politics is a form of secular providence. Christian culture would break the stranglehold of this state monopoly. You see, Christian culture is a form of monopoly busting. It doesn't establish a monopoly for the church, but it does destroy the monopoly of the state. It's this feature of Christian culture that secular statists find particularly irksome. A legitimate separation of church and state and a legitimate union of all of life under God's authority. 
These are two indispensable contributions that medieval Christendom made to Christian culture. Now, from here, we'll move on quickly, and I will be done, I promise, to the Protestant Reformation. Now, right away, we have to take account of the continuity at this point between Roman Catholicism and the Reformation. And yes, I'm a proud Protestant. At the time, both the Protestant reformers and their Roman Catholic opponents were quick to highlight the differences between the two communions and their respective theologies. Even today, partisans of each side stress and sometimes exaggerate those differences. But from our subsequent standpoint, we often see as many similarities as we do differences. In fact, I would say in many cases, many more similarities than differences. This is certainly the case with Christian culture. The fact is, the Protestant reformers broke with Rome over ecclesiastical theology, not over Christian culture. I want everyone to understand that. Calvin and Luther and Knox and Zwingli believed in Christian culture just as much as the Pope did. They simply believed that the church within that culture, as well as the Christians within it, would look different than in the Roman Catholic idea. Everybody following me on that? For the reformers to break with Christian culture would have been to completely upend European society. Society itself was Christian down to the deepest roots. You were born into the Christian society, baptized into it, educated within it, attended church within it, got married within it, conducted business within it, submitted to to its laws, had friendships and associations within it, and died within it. For the reformers to have broken with Christian culture would be akin to what Paul Pot and the Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia in 1975, completely reordered and revolutionized society. But the reformers were just that, reformers. They weren't revolutionaries. They inherited a Christian culture, and if anything, they wanted to improve and foster that culture, not diminish it or destroy it. In fact, they did improve and foster it. And here at the end, I'm going to mention a couple of ways, and we'll be done for this talk. First, they gradually developed a biblical society. Now, you recall that one of the great points of dispute between the Reformers and Rome was over the authority of the Bible. This dispute was not over the Bible's divine inspiration and infallibility. Both Rome and the Reformers believed that the Bible was God's inspired and infallible word. They believed this, just as all Christians believed this. But they didn't agree on the Bible's role in relation to other authorities, and particularly church tradition. Rome believed that tradition was a cooperative authority along with the Bible. The Bible is true, but it needs an authoritative interpreter. And that interpreter, of course, is the collective wisdom of the church. The Roman church, of course. The reformers argued that the Bible alone is the final authority. That it's self-authenticating. It's self-interpreting. And that all things, including church tradition, should be judged by the word of God. In Latin, this is called... Sola Scriptura. For the Roman communion, however, authority rested in a delicate relationship between the Bible and tradition. Now, say, okay, what about that, Andrew? Well, as it pertains to Christian culture, this meant that while the culture could not be specifically contra-biblical, it need not be founded on the teachings of the Bible in the medieval world. And from Rome's standpoint, that's a good thing, because Rome had long espoused the, have you heard of this, the nature-grace distinction? That is a distinctively Roman Catholic idea, that in, that in nature or creation, God provides for man's direction in abundant ways, quite apart from any super 
natural revelation. Grace, including salvation and the atoning work of Jesus Christ and in God's revelation in the Bible, is sort of the capstone to nature, the highest point. Nature is the foundation, and grace, we would say, is the superstructure. Man, sinful man, of course, is not made to live in life fully without grace, but he can live, and quite well, within nature apart from special revelation. In fact, nature is the natural, if I can say that, preparation for grace. You get supernatural grace in the church, but you can live pretty well without supernatural revelation outside the church. Not to Rome, this doesn't mean you're living apart from God, but it does mean that you're living apart from the specific teachings of the Bible in your ordinary, everyday living. This, in fact, is what natural law is for. God's revealing himself in nature apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Bible. This meant that in its broadest sense, medieval culture could be Christian without being biblical. The Protestant version of the nature-grace distinction is the two kingdoms theory. And it is equally erroneous. Alternatively, the Protestant view of sola scriptura required a modification in Christian culture. This is particularly true in the case with the Puritans. It meant that to be distinctively Christian, it wasn't enough to order society by appealing to the alleged universal truths of natural law that God gave. We need actually to go back to the Bible to find out what a society should look like. This meant, of course, turning back to the way of the Old Testament and the Jews as God's covenant people. It means that Christian culture is founded on special revelation and not on natural revelation. It meant biblical law and not natural law. It meant not just Christian culture, but a a biblical Christian culture. I might say sola scriptura culture. Now, this was a valuable recovery. A number of the Puritans were, let us admit, wrong to think that their new commonwealth, especially thinking of New England was a covenanted community in the sense that Israel was. But they weren't wrong to see in ancient Israel the basic revealed law of God in terms of which a society should be ordered. They understood that a consistently Christian culture needs to look to the Bible for guidance. In returning to the Bible, they were returning to God's explicit terms of justice. The natural law premise of Roman Catholic Christian culture allowed them to smuggle in, so to speak, to adopt ancient Roman or other classical ideas of law. Of course, not all of these pagan ideas were wrong, but they did allow justice to be interpreted by standards other than God's specially revealed standards in the Bible. An obvious example of this, by the way, is the just price. You've heard of this, the just price. So deeply ingrained in culture that even many of the reformers and Puritans retained it. They didn't understand that the Bible allows what we nowadays term the market to set prices. Products and services have no inherent unchangeable value in the marketplace. The long retention of the just price demonstrates the tenacity of allowing extra biblical ideas to intrude into a society's definition of justice. The consistently biblical definition of justice developed only later in Protestantism. Then there's a second and final unique contribution to Christian culture that the Protestant Reformation made. 
One of the main criticisms the Reformers leveled at the Roman Catholic Church was its dualistic scheme of spirituality. Sort of a spiritual caste system, we might say. The truly spiritual ones were the priests and others in church leadership. The monks and the nuns sequestered from ordinary life, from the world. And after death, even if you could get to this point, the saints who were super exalted Christians. The reformers didn't consider this caste system to be biblical. It introduced artificial distinctions into the Christian church. It created a dualistic spirituality. The priesthood was called to be entirely committed to God, but but the laity could live a life of sort of mediocre commitment as long as they came to confession and mass and paid money. The reformers knew that Rome got this point all wrong. Every Christian should be a committed Christian. Every Christian should be and is a saint. And the only difference between church leadership and the laity is over giftedness, not over a qualitative level of spirituality. This meant that that vocation itself could be and should be holy. The office of priest or the calling of a monk or a nun was not a higher or more spiritual calling than a jewel peddler or a shoe cobbler. We might call this the Protestant sanctification of vocation. Sanctification of vocation. And it had a profound effect on culture. It meant that the shoe cobbler or the wool merchant could look on his or her work as distinctively Christian. It wasn't simply that the culture itself is Christian. That's true. But every person's calling within that culture should be Christian. It was, in effect, the Christianization of all of life. Now, this sanctification of vocation is essential to a truly consistent Christian culture. Unfortunately, we evangelicals have developed our own version of spiritual dualism on this point, haven't we? You're allowed to say amen. In our own quarters, we have tended to exalt the work of the pastorate and missionaries and Christian day school teachers as somehow the Lord's work, while everything else is... It's acceptable, but sort of like secondary. Well, what do you do? Well, I cut down trees for a living. Oh, well, I'm studying to be a pastor. What do you do again? Well, I cut down trees for a living. Oh, okay. If you really wish to serve the Lord without qualification, you must, and I love this expression, surrender your life to the ministry. Oddly, no one ever speaks today of surrendering his life to writing computer code or selling or repairing automobiles or piloting commercial aircraft or making millions of dollars in investing prudently in the stock market. But in biblical terms, if in whether we eat or drink and in whatever we do, we're to do all to the glory of God. If God has called us to one of these vocations or another one outside the full-time ministry, We surrender our life to that vocation under God's authority. To the extent that we faithfully serve God in that vocation in terms of God's word, this is our highest possible calling. Now, it's not hard to grasp how this understanding enhances Christian culture. Since most of our cultural activities occur outside the church and full-time Christian service, Sanctifying these non-full-time areas to God's glory advances Christianity in places outside the church or the Christian school. 
On the other hand, if we believe that genuinely committed Christianity happens only inside the church and in Christian day schools and universities and on the mission field, and we consider all work outside these areas to be Christian in only a tangential or secondary sense, we can't expect our culture to be especially Christian. Now can we? In fact, this is why those evangelicals who hold this dualistic spiritual caste system are almost never proponents of Christian culture. They're content if the family and the church is truly Christian, and they believe that the rest of culture exists to support the Christian ministry. You cut down trees? Oh, yeah, you cut down trees? Give me your money, because I'm doing the important work. In the words of Christian businessman Howard Amundsen, they are, I love this expression, great commission utilitarians. That's the sort of moniker he gave to Christian businessmen and women who believe that their only goal in making money is to support the church and build more and bigger churches and sell on more and more missionaries. They don't understand that making a lot of money for one's family and to influence numerous areas of life for Christianity is the calling of Christian businessmen and women as Christians. As Christians. In sanctifying vocation, the Reformation enhanced Christian culture by Christianizing all of life. These are two principal ways that the Reformation enhanced and improved Christian culture. In conclusion, Christian culture pervaded the West from basically 313 A.D., at least it started then, to the 18th century European Enlightenment, and even longer here in North America. We owe to Christian culture the creation and or perpetuation of the hospital, the university, modern science, the exaltation of women, the legal protection of children, the separation of church and state, personal sanitation standards, the rights of minorities, free market capitalism, the separation of political powers, and finally, and far from least, religious liberty. That the Christian origins of these benefits are not more widely known is a testimony to the wide-ranging historical revisionism of the reigning secular myth of our times. In the next talk, I'll explain how that myth got started, how it succeeded, and what we can do to overcome it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.